0: It's February 25th, 1634, and Albrecht Wallenstein and his core group of generals are staying in the town of Eger on the Bohemian-Bavarian border. Fifteen months had passed since the Battle of Lutzen, and though that battle ended with Swedish victory, the death of their king had collapsed the momentum of their campaign. The war had again settled into a vicious stalemate. Wallenstein remained the key military commander on the imperial side, though much had changed for him as well. Beset by illness, his once unparalleled mastery of logistics had begun to falter, and his belief in astrology, once a hobbyist's fascination, was now his main tool in decision-making. Wallenstein and his generals
1: were met at Egger by Walter Butler, the commander in charge of a company of Irish and Scots soldiers under the command of Octavio Pigolomini the Italian mercenary who had taken Pappenheim's place in the imperial army after his death. The Irishman invited Wallenstein's generals, Illo, Kinski, Trica, and Niemann, to dinner at the city's castle. The generals obliged, though Wallenstein himself stayed at his lodgings near the town square. The group of imperial generals at the castle wined and dined, discussed campaigning plans, gossiped about various alliances, until... With a nod between Walter Butler and one of his servants, six dragoons rushed into the room, all yelling, Who's a good imperialist? The Irish mercenaries stood and declared, Long live Ferdinand! And with that, Wallenstein's men were beaten, bludgeoned, and stabbed to a sudden and bloody death.
0: At 10 p.m., Irish Captain Walter Devereux opened the door to Wallenstein's chambers. Wallenstein turned from the window, his boots, sword, and coat off, a frail old man preparing for bed. And... As he muttered something that may have been a plea for quarter, Captain Devereux ran Albrecht Wallenstein through with a halberd. The greatest general left standing in the Thirty Years' War, perhaps the only one able to conceive or achieve some sort of conclusion to the conflict, was dead. They rolled him up in a carpet and dragged his body away. There would be 14 more years of war to go.
1: Wallenstein's downfall was a tragedy of hubris. Practically since the moment he resumed command of the Imperial Army, he had been conducting his own private diplomatic negotiations with the Emperor's enemies. Though Wallenstein was a military man, first and foremost, his ambitions drew his eyes beyond the limits of the battlefield. The Emperor had brought him back after First Breitenfeld to save him from the Swedes, and that Wallenstein had accomplished. But the Emperor's refusal to make peace required a total victory over Sweden and German Protestantism that Wallenstein, being closer to the quickened pulse of the commercial world, knew could not be won. This gap in understanding could be leveraged to Wallenstein's advantage. If Ferdinand refused to make peace when it was clear that a military victory was impossible, Wallenstein would force peace upon him, thereby putting Wallenstein in the cockpit of German power. There were secret communications to the French, the Swedes, and the Protestant princes. Wallenstein also kept in contact with the commanders of the forces opposing him in the field to minimize unnecessary conflict while he brokered his own settlement. Wallenstein's visions were grand and somewhat whimsical. To a French ambassador, he suggested that the war could end with a unifying crusade against the Turks, (laughs) which is something that the Pope had sort of hoped for at the beginning of the conflict. There were also notions of a vast independent Central European state under Wallenstein's control. Failing that, the complete reduction of Habsburg power anything, in other words, to end the bloodshed and allow Germany to rebuild. After Lutzen, Wallenstein's refusal to engage with Swedish forces and the whisperings of his enemies in the army, that the generalissimo was telling anyone who would listen that the emperor was too powerfully under the sway of Jesuits to make a just peace, convinced Ferdinand that Wallenstein was a traitor. He was aware of the movement against him, but felt confident that his control of the army was strong enough to deter the emperor from action or if the emperor did act, his commanders would support him in any conflict. He was wrong. The Wallenstein war machine was formidable, but it was still essentially a parasite on the Holy Roman Empire. The bulk of Wallenstein's officers saw the emperor as a more reliable meal ticket than their increasingly isolated field commander, and it was this lack of support in the ranks that sealed Wallenstein's fate. While Wallenstein might have known more of the conditions of Germany than the emperor did, he couldn't see into the hearts of men, no matter how many horoscopes he commissioned. In the early days of 1634 in Vienna, the emperor arranged a secret trial, which convicted Wallenstein of treason. An imperial declaration of his dismissal from command, his official status as a traitor to the empire, and an order for his arrest was published in Prague on February 18th. It was while attempting to reach the safety of Swedish lines that Wallenstein and his most trusted subordinates stopped for rest and eager to enjoy the hospitality of the local garrison. The garrison was loyal to Piccolomini, and Piccolomini was loyal to the emperor. The result was the incredibly metal-sounding, eager bloodbath. (laughs) All of the assassins were rewarded with lands and titles, though few lived long enough to enjoy them. The death of Wallenstein signaled the end of the age of the mercenary captain, the conditary contractor who arose during the Italian wars to replace the aristocratic knights of the medieval era and would in turn be supplanted by corps of professional officers in the modern era. Military power, like the power to tax and administer justice, would be monopolized by the state if the state was to survive the maelstrom of the 17th century.
0: Do you think that there's a world where Wallenstein gets out of this alive, or at least not killed by his own boss?
1: (laughs) I don't think so, because a deal required the emperor. So the idea that Wallenstein could make a deal behind his back was just never really plausible. Because none of the people on the other side, the Swedes or the French, could have any confidence that the peace would be upheld. Uh, if it didn't have the emperor's approval
0: and he didn't even know the negotiations were happening. It's funny that the better Wallenstein is at his job and he was one of the best, the more likely he is to just bump into the ceiling of power and be killed by his own employers. Yep, yep. Uh, but that's the thing. Uh, the, the
1: This whole war is a bunch of people testing the, the, the length of their power uh, and then uh, finding to their horror uh, how little they actually have. Now, after an initial surge in interest in Wallenstein after his death, there was a play about him performed in London in 1640. (laughs) Uh, The general's name kind of faded with time but in the 19th century frederick schiller's trilogy of plays about wallenstein would resurrect his name and turn him into a symbol of german romantic nationalism dramatized as the man who could have banished imperial and catholic backwardness from the land and unified the country under the light of german liberty hundreds of years earlier which would have allowed germany to take its place as the paramount nation of europe but in the immediate aftermath of his death the tone of remembrance was somewhat different an epitaph for Wallenstein, published in Vienna, Frankfurt, Zurich, and Stuttgart in March of 1634, read Here lies and rots with skin and bones the powerful warlord Wallenstein, who collected great military power but never delivered a battle. He did grant many great good, but more often he hung innocence. Through stargazing and long windedness he lost much land and many people. Too tender was his bohemian brain. <laughs> He could not stand the ring of spurs, cocks, hens, and dogs he robbed in all places where he lodged, but he must go the way of death and let the cocks crow and the dogs bark. Now, that sounds kind of lame, but it rhymes in German, so it was probably pretty funny.
0: I mean, his, his tender bohemian brain.
1: <laughs> one of these soft-brained bohemians. Oh, yeah. You can't put him in charge of an army. What are you doing?
0: <laughs> Here, though, we should also bid adieu to a much more pitiful character in this saga, Less than two weeks after Gustavus' death at Lutzen, Frederick V, ever exiled, ever wandering, found himself in the small town of Bacharach outside Maine. This town, like basically all of war-torn Germany, was suffering a bout of plague. And here, worn down, ever losing, the winter king Frederick V of the Palatinate died at the age of 36 on November 29, 1632. His body was evacuated and reinterred several times as various armies encroached on various cities it was placed in, and his body was last seen in a wine merchant's cellar near Metz. His final burial site is unknown. The originator of this whole conflict, the first loose thread, the one so many had fought and died for, the punkin instigator of the Thirty Years' War, was dead, and it meant basically nothing for the conflict. Amazingly, though, this was somehow
1: not the last gasp of the Wittelsbachs in the Palatinate. So, you might remember that during that brief uh, honeymoon in Prague, uh, Elizabeth and Frederick gave had a son, yes. uh, who they named Rupert after the only Wittelsbach Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, And this young man would grow to become sort of the flower of aristocratic chivalry during the age. Uh, For one thing, he was a little asshole (laughs) who all of his servants hated and nicknamed Rupert the Devil. And that's key to being a aristocratic fancy boy. Uh, So he's born at the beginning of the conflict. And it's still going on when he's 18 in England in exile, where he offers a public subscription, which is essentially a military GoFundMe to raise an army to put his brother charles Louis on the throne of the palatinate his forces were defeated and he was captured at the battle of vlotho in 1638 Uh, while in custody he failed to bribe his captors Uh, there was an attempted military rescue by french and swedish forces that failed he was offered his release if he converted to catholicism which he refused to do and he was eventually released by promising the emperor's wife empress Maria Anna, that he wouldn't ever fight against Germany, cross his heart swear to die. after he was released, he went to live with his mother's family, the Stuarts, in England. And this is not the last we will hear, just letting you know, of this dandy fop.
0: And there's also in the background uh, prolonged attempts to put Charles Lewis on the throne, and he's kicking around central Germany for a while. These guys, these they don't guys, know how to take a fucking hint. Yes, just go, go live in The hague.
1: And of course, of course. The hilarious thing is, when the whole thing is said and done, they will get partial restitution of their of their claims, which just shows that there's really no justice for anybody <laughs> in the world.
0: Yes, yes. If there was one group who should have just been duly punished for their their, They should have been, they should have been made
1: piss boys and, and grooms. They should have been forced to, to serve people flagons of ale, and, and they should not have been Put back into anybody's uh, anybody's manor house,
0: <sighs> but there is no justice. No, nope. in Central Germany in the 17th century. Mm-mm. The death of Gustavus Adolphus had once again dissipated any momentum in the Protestant effort. I mean. These guys can just not keep it up. And the elimination of Wallenstein had similarly caused a major organizational blow for the Imperial forces. With the two great generals dead and the guy who, you know, this whole thing was kind of about, also dead, one might think there would be some kind of motion for peace. But we would still got armies in the field, continental power ambitions, and certain parties demanding satisfaction. The Swedish army now fell into the control of Axel Oxenstierna a still tremendously capable diplomat and administrator, but lacking the generational martial prowess of Gustavus. Oxenstierna knew Sweden could not leave the conflict without some reward for its vast expenditures and looked to keep Pomerania as a continental foothold for Sweden, although he knew this would also require some kind of repayment to George William of Brandenburg to relinquish the territory. With Gustavus' six-year-old daughter, Queen Christina, on the throne, and yes, that's another Christian Christina character in this, but she's not that important, you don't have to remember her too much, Uh, Swedish nobles were free to reassert some control at home, further undermining his position. And on a trip home, Oxenstierna had to liberate Queen Christina from her overbearing queen mother who had locked the little queen away in a room with windows blackened out and nothing but fools and dwarves and elves for entertainment. <laughs> uh, a liberation. <laughs> so Axel comes home and finds the queen like locked in a room with a bunch of dwarf jesters <laughs> while the queen mother's trying to run things. He, he solves this situation and the queen Christina would have be forever grateful to Axel for this. But on the continent... Oxenstierna had, for the moment, brought major leaders of the Protestant forces together under Swedish direction in a new Protestant league, the Heilbronn League. In Spain, Olivares wanted to continue the fight uh, because keeping the Spanish road open was essential to Spain's ongoing conflict in the Netherlands. Uh, With Spanish financial inputs virtually dictating policy in Vienna, Olivares could press Ferdinand to once again push his advantage against a weakened Protestant alliance. And then there was Cardinal Richelieu, whose chief foreign adversary remained the Spanish. Richelieu now found himself and France the sole viable linchpin of an anti-Habsburg alliance. And while there was conflict between the Spanish and the French, it would for the moment be fought in Germany. So the deaths of Gustavus and after 13
1: months of dulcetory combat, Wallenstein left both sides with significant leadership deficits. Akshensterno passed over John George of Saxony, who he called an insignificant tosspot, Bern, to give command of the Heilbronn League forces to Bernard of the Duchy of Saxe Weimar, who leveraged mutinous discontent among the poorly paid Swedish troops to gain huge grants of land and income for himself. By the way, that's the thing we haven't talked too much about, but this entire time this is happening... All of the armies are seeing uh, nonstop mutinies mm-hmm. as different companies and, and regiments say, we're not going to move. We're not going to lift up arms until we get paid or some guarantee of future payment. And for the most part, their commanders would just use their uh, anger to extract more benefits to themselves. And then, of course, let a little bit trickle down to the troops enough to keep them fighting, basically. Now, this didn't stop the Swedes from losing their hold on southern and northeastern Germany, where many of their former allies refused to join the Heilbronn League and being forced to retrench closer to their Pomeranian bridgehead. Wallenstein's death allowed the emperor to sequester Wallenstein's lands, which gained for him a massive cash infusion, just as tax collection and agricultural production in a lot of Germany was breaking down.
0: Because Wallenstein, remember, by the time of his death, was the largest single landowner in Bohemia.
1: Yeah. And then all of that goes to the crown. It also gave Ferdinand a chance to put his son and heir, Archduke Ferdinand III, in overall command of imperial forces. But the prince would be sidelined by a different Habsburg named Ferdinand.
0: God damn it. Get some new names.
1: The new governor of the Netherlands, the cardinal infant, not really a cardinal because while he was a... He did have the office of a cardinal. He had never been ordained as a priest (laughs) uh, and not really an infant because infante was the Spanish term for a prince of the blood.
0: And sorry if I made that guy sound too much like an actual baby back in episode one. That was just a funny image for me. A little baby in a cardinal's miter. Hope you're not too disappointed. It's just another Ferdinand Habsburg. Uh, This one, a Spanish one. Uh, Cardinal infant Ferdinand, who was King Philip IV of
1: Spain's brother and who raised an army of over 11,000 men in Italy and marched them over the Alps into Germany in May of 1634. A summer of maneuvers saw Protestant forces under Bernard and the Swedish general Gustav Horn attempt failed sieges of cities in and north of Bavaria, and Ferdinand's imperial troops successfully take the Bavarian city of Regensburg. By early September, the Cardinal Infant and Emperor Infant
0: <laughs> Ferdinand's—sorry, <laughs> um, this is—it's so, so so difficult. I hope this comes across. They're two Ferdinands. Okay. <laughs> For the most part, you don't really need to know if they're named Ferdinand. They're a Habsburg. It's yeah, just that's a good one on way. the yeah. side.
1: And if they're uh, if, if they're Christian, they're probably a Protestant. Yes, they're George. They're German. It's fine. Don't yes. worry about it. It, made, it makes make sense in the end. Yeah. Yeah. By the by, early September, the Cardinal Infant and Emperor Infant Ferdinand's forces, numbering over thirty thousand, had linked up to lay siege to Nordlingen, 100 miles west of Regensburg. In an effort to lift the siege, the combined armies of Horn and Bernard, who rotated command uh, on the the march to preserve their egos, uh, gave battle to the Spanish and Imperial troops of the two Ferdinands at dawn on September 6th. The initial Swedish advance brushed aside Green Bavarian recruits, but was eventually repulsed by seasoned Spanish tercios. At one point, a powder magazine exploded, causing chaos and confusion among the Swedish lines. The Swedes made several more attacks, but the superior numbers of the Catholic side allowed them to refresh their lines continuously. Also, the Spanish troops were able to neutralize the Swedes' most effective battlefield tactic, their coordinated volley fire, with one weird trick,
0: ducking. (laughs) Swedes hate this one weird trick. It's true.
1: <laughs> they, had, they had come to the continent and blown everybody's mind with their ability to fire. Everybody rapidly. firing at once. And eventually the Spanish realized, well, we know they're going to fire. We just have to lay down for one second and then they're fucked. <laughs> eventually, Imperial Croatian cavalry turned the exhausted Swedish left flank and the rout was on. General Horn and 4,000 Swedish troops were captured. Many of them had been previously surrendered imperial troops who'd been pressed into Swedish service, and them, along with a good number of Heilbron League prisoners, ended up just signing papers and switching sides. <laughs> 6,000 Protestant soldiers died on the field, with another 2,000 massacred when the Croatians seized the Swedish baggage train. Bernardo Saxe Weimar was able to escape the debacle on a borrowed horse. To Akshan Sterne, he reported, The great misfortune is so bad, it could not be any worse. The Battle of Nordlingen was the greatest Habsburg victory since White Mountain, and it broke Swedish power in southern Germany for good. Akschenstern tried to organize a counteroffensive, but his German allies, foremost among them, good old Beer George of Saxony, refused to cooperate. Emperor Ferdinand seized on this dissension in the Protestant ranks to offer an olive branch. Though Wallenstein had counted him too priest-addled to seek peace, by this point Ferdinand was aware that his fantasy of a truly holy Roman Empire was just that. After a series of negotiations, the emperor and John George, negotiating on behalf of the Lutheran princes, achieved a preliminary settlement in November that was formalized in May of 1635 as the Peace of Prague. The peace dissolved both the Helbron and Catholic leagues and revoked the Edict of Restitution, restoring the religious control of bishoprics, monasteries, and towns to what it had been in November of 1627. There was also a general amnesty for all who had fought against the Empire, save the family of Frederick V.
0: Good. Get rid <laughs> of these guys. And also just on the, uh, the Ferdinand Austrian Habsburg side, we'll see later on today that they take a lot of L's in the general battle, but all throughout this time, like what we were saying with Wallenstein, they were able to vastly consolidate the actual Austrian Habsburg lands and put Austria, Styria, Bohemia... Hungary under much more direct control of the Habsburgs so they are getting victories there
1: it's true and a lot of those lands had been deeply evangelized yes uh, in the previous generations and that was fully reversed Mm -hmm. Uh, the counter-reformation in the Habsburg lands was totally uh, affected by or or was effectively total uh, due to the outcome of the war Now, this left the Swedes in an untenable position. Mm -hmm. Their influence waning, German allies demobilizing. The French subsidies had already been slowing to a trickle before the death of Gustavus and had dried up completely afterwards. So Oxenstern put his foot down to Richelieu. If Sweden is going to keep fighting on behalf of French interest, France is going to have to start pulling their fucking weight. Richelieu had been happy to let others do the fighting and dying until now. But with Spanish garrisons along the Rhine now threatening French territorial integrity he reluctantly agreed to commit troops to the war for the first time. After coordinating with the Dutch on a military campaign in the Netherlands, Richelieu came to an agreement with Auction There would be a resumption of increased subsidies to Sweden in exchange for a 60-mile corridor of land along the west bank of the Rhine that would be claimed by the French crown as crown lands, as well as an official declaration of war on Spain. Using the Spanish imprisonment of a French prelate as pretext, Richelieu went to war the old-fashioned way, just as Ferdinand was securing the Peace of Prague. As C.V. Wedgwood put it, He dispatched a herald and a trumpeter to Brussels, who, on the 21st of May, 1635, standing announced, After the proper fanfare, the King of France's just cause, and threw in the crowd a formal proclamation of war. They then set spurs to their horses and galloped safely off. <laughs> this would be the last war declared in Europe using the proper chivalric ritual we should do that again absolutely just chucking a fucking declaration of war into a crowd of people and running away
0: (laughs) well it's also you know in our modern era world in in all these conflicts that are you know where we're like lightly uh doing a war and what you know like africa or whatever we should have to send a guy with a trumpet to a place and be like we are we are invading you now
1: just drop a declaration of war out of a drone
0: (laughs) Now, this war began as a succession crisis in the Kingdom of Bohemia, and over the last 15 or so years, it had drawn in powers from across the continent, but all with the stated mission of confirming some party's legitimate prerogative over the German lands, whether it's for the privileges of the Protestant princes or the authority of the Catholic Empire. And yes, it's involved foreign intervention and the pulling of foreign invading armies, but still with the aim of supporting an essentially German domestic conflict. At the point of the French invasion in 1635, after a mutually agreed domestic religious settlement, this distinction is over. Though it had always had some of these characteristics, the war was now primarily a continental power conflict fought on the ravaged soil of Germany. A struggle for hegemony between the two Catholic powers, Habsburg and Bourbon, simply waged where everyone had already set up their gear. As well, among the forces, the organizing principle of religion begins to fade into the organizing principle of the nation. The principle that the war was fought to ensure the correct way of worship among some people dissipated. Among the new generation of fighters, that matter was simply between an individual and their god, whether it was Catholic or Protestant. Catholic, Lutheran, Calvinist became less important than French, German, Swede. At White Mountain, the Catholic battle cry was for Santa Maria, but by Nordlingen, they changed their cry to Viva España. The nature of the war itself begins to rapidly change as well. The objectives shift. This is no longer about gaining a victory more than it is about seeing the defeat of your enemies. The time scale changes. Armed conflicts of this period were already seasonal, with a campaigning summer and a quartered winter. And remember, we're in the little ice age right now. It's cold as shit for longer than usual, so you're spending most of your time just quartered in the cold. But increasingly, the conflicts and roving armies became enmeshed in the biological matrix of the countryside, campaigning, camping, marching, and quartering based more on where food and shelter can be scavenged than based on any strategic military objective. The name of the game was attrition. Park your army in your enemy's territory for as long as possible, leeching resources out of the land more than they can take from yours, and the aim was not to win, but to just game better terms at the eventual settlement everyone knew would come, but just wanted to be holding the best hand when it did. And so that's why this episode is hell. We'll be spending less time today reviewing the minutia of the war. This army went here, this general changed sides, this city got sacked, as much as looking at the devastating full effects of this prolonged, indecisive war of attrition on the population. And... Since so much of life in Germany during the war was determined by proximity to one of the armies marching across the country, let's start by taking a minute to talk about the people those armies were actually made up of.
1: They came from all over the continent, from Madrid to Malmo, from Florence to Fife. Except for those conscripted by the Swedish Empire, they were signed up by an army recruiter, usually close to the town or village they came from. They tended to be town dwellers rather than peasants, and while a good amount, as many as 30%, in some cases, became soldiers for lack of other employment options, most had some sort of trade. For their own reasons, they found life in the towns temperamentally unsuitable and sought something else. And army life sure was something else. Urbanity of a rougher, bloodier sort. Armies were essentially moving cities, with a number of troops dwarfed by a trailing retinue of servants, peddlers, blacksmiths, gunsmiths, hostlers... Barbers, tailors, prostitutes, and families, soldiers with wives and children brought them along on campaign. The military camp operated by its own internal laws. Discipline, such as it was, was maintained by officers, but conflicts between common soldiers were regulated by duels, fistfights, and tribunals with military juries. Though religious differences helped shape the conflict, the armies did not enforce religious uniformity, with Calvinists fighting for Spain and Catholics for the Swedes. Piety was in short supply. Religious ritual tended to be organized around charging totems to make oneself impervious to bullets. The hierarchical social structure of the era was replicated in the army, but in a more intimate, streamlined form. Officers were mostly the landless sons of noble families. Nobles also predominated in the cavalry, where the cost of maintaining a horse limited recruitment. Even among the regular foot soldiers there were ranks of honor. The most well-respected of common troopers were the pikemen that respect due to the storied place of pikes in military tradition and the skill necessary to successfully wield one. Next were the halberdiers and those who fought with a sword and buckler, which is a small round shield. Last were the musketeers, whose martial prowess rested in their heavy matchlock musket, not their person. These ranks also tended to correspond to pay, although in practice how much a soldier was paid varied greatly between and within units. Experience and haggling ability were the final determiner of what salary a soldier agreed to with his recruiter. On paper, soldiers' pay was comparable to what a hired laborer could command in towns or during harvests, but in reality pay was intermittent and often absent for months. Mutinies were a common way for troops to pressure their commander into paying back wages, but most mutinies were ended with small advances of cash and a promise of future restitution. Soldiers supplemented their wages with plunder, the ransoming of noble POWs, and even odd jobs. Many troops hired themselves out as watchmen. They were derisively referred to as guard connects. When soldiers did come into money thanks to their commander arranging a new line of credit or booty claimed during the sack of a town, they tended to orgiastically squander it, leaving them empty-pursed and miserable for long periods of time. The temptation to help oneself to the food and wealth of the civilian population was overwhelming. Non-combatants were seen as occupying a fundamentally different world than that of the soldiery, one that the troops felt no obligation to respect. Whatever words civilians might use for them, the troops referred to each other and their camp followers as Kriegsvolk, war people. Battles were rare, but hardship was endemic, with hunger, plague, and lice as constant companions. Yet this shared experience created a common vocabulary, culture, and sense of control that could not be found elsewhere. You might die bleeding on the field or shitting yourself in a latrine, but you marched unencumbered, your belongings carried by your woman or your servants. You were an emissary of the Red Horseman. In a world where the elaborate pageants and gestures of social obligation had been stripped away, leaving only relationships of pure animal predation, it was better to be a wolf than a sheep. Better a war person than a mere person.
0: In the last episode, we described the elation of the Protestant citizens of Erfurt when Gustavus' troops triumphantly entered the city. But the goodwill did not last long. Within a few months, a refugee from Erfurt reported, "...not only are we oppressed by the tyranny of the imperialists, but the licentiousness of the Swedish soldiery is so great that we hardly know who is our friend." The inability and unwillingness of the princes and generals to keep their troops paid meant that encounters between troops and civilians became increasingly fraught with menace. That was true when the war still had some graspable aim, like bohemian succession, or featured capable, charismatic leaders like Gustavus and Wallenstein. In their absence, all notions of cause or right dissolved in the face of a gnawing, ceaseless hunger. Under the
1: best of circumstances, the process by which troops extracted contributions from towns and villages was laden with the threat of violence. When a well-led military patrol entered the town with a competent council, accommodations could be made. When the Swedish army occupied Olmutz in 1642, the field marshal demanded a ransom of $150,000 to spare the town. The city council was able to bargain him down to $30,000 for the provision of his forces and a personal bribe of $4,000 to the marshal. Now, these sorts of delicate negotiations often determined the fate of a town. This is why the troops of both sides most feared and hated by the peasantry. For the Swedes, it's the Finnish Hakapaleta Cavalry. And for the imperialists, the Croatian cravats, were the most linguistically alien, therefore the most likely to simply take what they wanted from villagers rather than waste time in fruitless palaver. <laughs> Some peasant communes would hire soldiers as watchmen or conscripted them into their feuds with neighboring villages. But even a peaceful occupation could be ruinous to a town.
0: That's just making me imagine a 30 years of war yo jimbo or a fistful of dollars where you get one of these uh, mercenaries to guard your town and play both warriors against each
1: other. That happened all the time. Yes. There's documented cases all over Germany. The demands of an imperial detachment in the city of Wernerod are instructive. For the officers, daily were demanded two jugs of wine, one keg of beer, three bushels of oats for six riding horses, three bushels of oats for eight wagon horses, two cartloads of straw, two bushels of wheat, two fatted rams, and then per week, an entire cow. Now, that was just for the officers. For the 130 soldiers that they commanded, they all required daily two pounds of meat each, which is 250 pounds a day, and one and a quarter pounds of bread, which ends up being over 1,000 pounds a week. Also, a keg of, keg of beer and a bushel of salt a day. So that's a company.
0: That's 100, 130 guys and a few officers. Yeah. And we're talking about armies of 10, 20, yeah. 30,000.
1: An army of 30,000 required 30,000 pounds of meat and 20,000 gallons of beer a day. It is small wonder that a common metaphor to describe the ravening armies was a
0: horde of locusts.
1: God was delivering judgment as he judged the Egyptians.
0: Just getting your head on what like the lifestyle and what the actual grounds of this place are you know it's easy to think of medieval these medieval production methods as as having so much scarcity but imagining a a a culture a civilization right now that is capable of producing 20,000 gallons of beer a day (laughs) all over the city all over the country mm-hmm. it's wild 20,000 gallons of beer a day for 30 <laughs> years i mean of course they were all drinking that they so, themselves yeah and also the whole time this is happening vast numbers of villagers are just starving to death yes, in the countryside yes. contributions were not the only accommodations expected of townspeople troops were to be quartered in homes their expenses paid for by the homeowners from the diary of a saxon household in 1637 at the beginning of this year the swedish general benair was here again he again assigned our good city twenty four thousand florins for the arson prevention assessment which is you know paying the army to stop them from burning the towns out you get it's a real nice bohemian village you got here it Would be a shame if it uh burnt to the ground huh yeah. uh he continues i received as quartering in my house his regimental judge with his wife two children one maid one servant and a boy this was a godless devil's pack the man was calvinist the woman catholic They led such an Epicurean lifestyle that it is impossible to describe it. They invited similarly godless people as guests. They ate, drank, and whored all day and night, so that the food alone cost me nine florins. Additionally, I was forced to give away a golden chain, which I had given my wife and she had sewn into her dress. I had to cut it out and give it to them. Also, because the wife of the regimental judge gave birth to twins, I had to arrange for the baptism festivity. Bro, they made you cut the gold chain out of your wife's gift dress and you had to pay for their kids baptisms it's brutally humiliating a common figure of terror was the brandmeister carrying a giant smoldering torch good for burning down the huts of recalcitrant villagers the power these armed occupying troops had over their hosts was absolute and absolutely abused in 1636 in westphalia a Hessian trooper cut off a carpenter's hand for failing to doff his cap fast enough. This, of course, inspired no respect among their hosts. A woman in Augsburg admitted to having cooked and eaten the body of a soldier who had died in her house during a siege. And this was under conditions of relative plenty. But the war ground on and armies tromped across the countryside so much in a strategically important area like Hohenloh in the southwest, an observer could say, At times, one cannot say with certainty who actually controlled the territory. The conditions of war took a brutal toll on the combatants. Of the 25,000 Swedish and Finnish troops who entered Germany in 1630, half were dead within two years. A single 1,000-man regiment lost a third of their number to disease in that time, with another sixth dying of battle wounds and another eighth deserting. The constant demands of the soldiery destroyed any incentive for the peasantry to even grow crops. In the words of an English minister, Philip Vincent, who traveled through Germany during the war, quote, No tilling of the land, no breeding of cattle, for if they should, the next year the soldiers would devour it. No other abode but some camp, no other plow to follow, no other employment but the war. The Little Ice Age decimated those crops that were still being grown. In 1640, a Catholic soldier wrote that, At this time, there was such a great cold that we almost froze to death in our quarters. Big deal, you might say. But that was in August. The Swedish army was able to cross the frozen Danube with their artillery to bombard Regensburg. Hailstorms and summer frosts obliterated plantings. Grain yields collapsed. The savagery that marked the war and all wars from the beginning moved from the periphery of the experience to its bleeding heart. Contribution gave way to straight
1: pillage, with detachments of troops torturing peasants and townspeople for the location of hidden loot. Priests were disemboweled, children beaten and led on leashes by blood-drunk troopers. The Swedes, ever innovative in matters of war, devised a particularly effective form of interrogation, the Swedish drink. As a Thuringian pastor remembered... Twice in one hour, they gave me the Swedish cocktail, filled with manure drippings. My teeth were almost all loose after this, because as they put a big stick in my mouth, I resisted as I could while tied up. This was a mixture of manure, urine, and water poured down the throat until something came up, first vomit, then, hopefully, the location of jewelry, plate, or heirlooms that had been secreted by the family. The relationship between troops and common folk in Germany was summarized in a saying of the time. Every soldier needs three peasants. One to give up his lodgings, one to provide his wife, and one to take his place in hell. Peasant resistance to this reign of terror took several forms. Some armed peasants organized into bands, such as the Hart's Mountain Sharpshooters, who ambushed patrols, beating to death any soldier they could get their hands on. Isolated soldiers were always in danger of being waylaid by locals and tortured extravagantly. Other peasants fled into nearby forests to hide, with some villages emptying dozens of times over the course of the war. Many of those villages would be abandoned permanently as refugees sought safety elsewhere or died of exposure, plague, or encounters with marauding mercenaries. An account of one such harrowing encounter in Saxony in 1640 highlights another permanent feature of the war for calories in the countryside sexual violence. A squadron of troops, having turned over every brick in an abandoned village, plunged into the neighboring forest, eventually coming upon the makeshift shelters of the refugee peasants. From the memoirs of a survivor, when hungry foraging parties came and found nothing and couldn't load themselves up with anything, then they vented their rage on the people. They caught them, beat them, and forced them to show where their people and their livestock were. They stripped males and females stark naked. They ravished decent women in the woods and they bound maidens with straps to abuse them and led them to their quarters and so disgracefully mishandled them that they died afterward. They took many females along with them to war. Others they took only to the nearest city and kept them only until they ransomed them. Many of these groups of soldiers had drifted away from their armies completely, living off their plunder. The roadways of Germany became nightmarishly dangerous, filled with wild boars and dogs and bandit deserters. The chronicler Volkmar Hap recorded an incident in which one group of Swedish soldiers, having stolen some peasants' horses, were robbed and relieved of the horses and their clothes by another group of Swedish troops. So, as Hop writes, one wolf devours another.
0: For one more picture of this hell, I want to read you a passage from The Adventures of Simplicius Simplicimus, a German novel written by Hans Jakob Christophel von Grimmelhausen. This was written after the war in the 1660s but grimmelhausen was born in hesse in central germany in 1621 or 22 and experienced much of the 30 years war firsthand as a youth he was in fact a veteran of the war itself simplicius is a work of fiction and the amount of it that's directly autobiographical is up for debate but it's certainly one of the best literary fiction depictions of the era we have from someone who lived through it and just incidentally Uh, The book rocks. It's harrowing and funny, and the uh, Penguin Classics edition is a really fun read. Uh, Plus, it has a cool, gnarly skeleton shooting a bow and arrow on the front of it, so you look cool reading it. Uh, Highly recommend. So this is a scene narrated by our hero Simplicius, a kind of Huck Finn or Forrest Gump figure, a child bumbling along through the important events of the war. Here, he's accidentally led a company of soldiers back to his family's quiet, and secluded forest home. The first thing the ruffians did was stable their horses. Then, each had his appointed task, which involved a lot of wrecking and spoiling. While some began butchering and boiling and roasting with every appearance of cooking up a feast, others ransacked the house from top to bottom. No room was safe. You'd have thought the golden fleece of Colchis was hidden somewhere. And some made piles of linen clothes and household items as if for a jumble sale, and what they couldn't use they trashed. Others stabbed at heaps of hay and straw with their swords, as if they hadn't impaled enough sheep and pigs already. Another again shook the feathers out of the bed covers and filled them instead with hams, other dried meats, and kitchen utensils, as if these would make for more comfortable sleeping. Stoves and windows were smashed to pieces, quite as if the vandals forecast an eternal summer. Copper and tin pans were bashed in, and the dented and ruined bits carted off. Bedsteads, tables, chairs, and benches were all torched. Why, with stacks of firewood dry in the yard, if that was what they were after? Pots and dishes all had to be smashed, either because men preferred eating off the spit or because they knew they'd not be having another meal there. Our maid, I'm ashamed to say, was so abused in the barn that she couldn't walk afterwards. The stable lad they trussed up laid him on the ground, wedged a stick between his teeth, and poured a milking pail full of a slurry down his throat. A Swedish toast, they called it. Afterwards, they made him lead a party out into the fields, from where they returned with men, women, and animals they'd rounded up. Dad, Mom, and our Ursula among them. Then, they really got going. They removed the flints from their pistols and screwed the peasants' thumbs instead, hurting the poor fellows so awfully they might have been after witches. They did in fact bundle one prisoner into the bread oven and push fire in after him, even though he'd confessed to nothing. They took another, bound rope around his head, and wound the rope so tight with a stick that blood spurted from the man's mouth, nose, and ears. To cut a long story short, each soldier devised his own method of torture, and each peasant was put through his or her particular ordeal. Dad was the only lucky one, as I thought at the time. He was grinning and laughing all over his face when he owned up to what the others had screeched and mumbled in pain. I'm sure the honor was done him because he was the head of the household. What happened was they sat him in a chair by the fire, tied his hands and foot, rubbed his bare soles with dampened salt, which they then made our old goat lick off. That must have tickled so much that it made him laugh fit to burst. The sound was so catching I had to guffaw too, though whether to keep dad company or through not knowing better, I can't say. And as he laughed, he owned up to them to where he kept his treasure, which included gold and pearls and jewelry, and a lot was more valuable than a farmer might have been expected to possess. As to what happened to the women and female servants and young girls they took prisoner, I can't tell you in detail. The soldiers wouldn't let me see what they did to them. I can imagine, though, partly from the pathetic screams that occasionally came from the corners of the house. And I don't suppose Mum or our Ursula fared better than the others. Through all this awfulness, I turned spits, and after the feast, I helped water the horses, which is how I came across our milkmaid in the stable. She looked dreadfully disheveled, and I didn't recognize her until she spoke to me, her voice more than a bit wobbly. Get away, lad, get away. Otherwise, the soldiers will take you with them. Promise me, make yourself scarce. You can see how horribly... But that was all she managed to get out. Throughout the country, the accounts of famine and deprivations create horrifying images. A soldier recounts seeing a woman gnawing on the same raw meat from a dead horse that a raven and wild dog were also picking at. The bodies of criminals were torn from the gallows and eaten. Guards were posted at graveyards to prevent the newly buried becoming food for the living. Mass graves of bodies stripped of flesh and sucked to the marrow were found. An English traveler at the time describes the unsettling feeling of traveling through a town completely devoid of life, though with one house still on fire. In another town, his party found the streets littered with dead, their starved mouths filled with the grass they had been chewing on when they finally died of famine. Finally, they encountered a town with some life. People splayed on dunghills so weak they could barely crawl to his caravans to receive his alms. Plague persisted everywhere, particularly among armies and besieged cities. Plague would ravage cities during a siege, and when the siege was lifted, giving the beleaguered citizens hope for escape, sentries were posted at city gates with orders to shoot those who might venture out looking for food, lest they spread their disease. Soldiers would be abandoned, pushed out of wagon trains, and trampled into the mud as the army evacuated pestilent camps. Death, bodies, emptiness everywhere. From Wedgwood, The Swedes alone were accused of destroying nearly 2,000 castles, 18,000 villages, and over 1,500 towns. Bavaria claimed to have lost 80,000 families and 900 villages, Bohemia, five-sixths of its villages and three-quarters of its population. In Württemberg, the number of inhabitants was said to have fallen to a sixth, in Nassau to a fifth, in Hennenberg to a third, and in the Wasted Palatinate to a fiftieth of its original size. So I feel we should take a stock now after this litany of horrors that we see. It's striking to me how much, you know, hearing that image of a woman gnawing at a horse, Hieronymus Bosch's visions of hell came to literal truth a few centuries later in his own landside. Yeah, yeah, the apocalypse showed up. Like that's the thing. Like you, you, you read
1: about the cyclical frenzies, the the horror, the the, the dread of the idea of God's judgment coming to Earth, and and you think, oh, these these ignorant, superstitious peasants. But then, uh, it showed up at at, at everyone's doorstep
0: uh, in Germany, and it was originally from again these religious disputes of people attempting to through their own divination of the true meaning of the word of God create an idea of paradise on earth of these Calvinists and Lutherans believing that they were purifying the church to bring a God's true vision of love onto the continent. And through that created this conflict that brings this apocalypse to everyone. And unlike previous wars in Europe, previous
1: famines, previous plagues, which had all been monstrously traumatic and horrible. uh, They had been so in a local discrete context because of a lack of any kind of mass media to replicate the experience. But this war is the first to see newspapers uh, and, and, and yes. engravings and pamphlets filled with images and, and horrible stories about the violence taking place that had never happened before. Even those who were untouched by war. And there were some swaths of Germany during this time that were largely spared contact with any of this. Even there, they could share the trauma through this popular depiction of the violence in a way that had never been possible before the printing industry and so this gore joins with god as grist for this cultural mill uh creating a mood of apocalypse and horror
0: On the physical material ruination of the continental population, the war brought another torture that of the mind and the spirit. Another bout of apocalyptic millennialism emerged throughout Europe, with writers like Johann Alsted applying the academic logic of Calvinism to the prediction of the end of days. We also see a series of manias gripping the public as the ravages of war and ice age plunged Germany into despair. Fear took hold in the villages of that ancient great other, witches. The 1620s and 1630s in southern Germany saw some of the most intense witch hysterias in European history. In Bamberg, an independent Catholic prince bishopric north of Nuremberg, between 1626 and 1632, over 900 individuals were tried and executed as witches. Similar deadly hysterias took place in nearby Würzburg around the same time, that one notable for its trial and execution of many religious officials and children, some as young as a four. Like these things often are, the Bomberg witch trials were encouraged by a particularly zealous leader, Catholic Prince Bishop Johann von Dornheim, who came to be called the Hexenbrenner, the burner. Though I must also shout out that the witch trials in Baumberg went back a few generations to one of his predecessors, whose name is the whimsical Natard von Thurngen. <laughs> the number of trials ballooned exponentially through the practice of torturing the accused until they would confess, then torturing them more until they named multiple accomplices. Somewhat unusually, the witch hunters followed these accusations up and down the social ladder, subjecting burghers and peasants alike to trials, imprisonment, and burning. Then Dornheim had to eventually build a special prison complete with torture chamber adorned with Bible verses to hold all the supposed witches. Eventually, even the mayor, Johannes Unius, as well as the well-to-do doctor, George Hahn, were accused. Unius was tortured with thumbscrews and the strapado until he confessed. That would be tying your arms together behind your back and then tying that to the ceiling and yanking you up and then dropping you by your arms behind your back until they would dislocate the mayor Unius was publicly burned to death in 1628. George Hahn fled the cities to seek imperial intervention, but due to the war, Bomberg was cut off from the imperial authority. While a message urging her release was delayed reaching the city, his wife, Katharina Hahn, was burned for witchcraft. Mildly ironic to me that 400 years later, Catherine Hahn delighted certain audiences <laughs> with her portrayal of a w- evil witch on TV in the new, always some remnant of the old. Eventually, George, his wife, and two of their five children were executed for witchcraft. All the while, imperial authorities tried and failed to intervene against the proceedings. It was not until Protestant armies of Gustavus Adolphus were able to take control of the region that the witch hysteria was finally extinguished. The Cycles of witch mania had afflicted
1: Germany since the mid-1500s, ignited by the social pressures of the Reformation and the general air of apocalyptic dread, but they reached a fever pitch in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. The endemic misery and horror of the times demanded action. In Bomberg, for example, the bloodiest phase of witch trials occurred the same year that a late frost destroyed the entire local grain harvest. The peasant revolts of the first years of the war had been bloodily suppressed. No action against the perpetrators of war could be countenanced. Scapegoats would have to be identified to appease the wrath of God. It seemed that Christ's suffering had not erased the European impulse towards blood sacrifice after all. But not all outbreaks of witch hysteria resulted in mass torture and death. When accusations served the interests of local authorities, they resulted in trials, torture, escalating denunciations, and executions. When they did not, they were ignored or oppressed. As such, while witch trials occurred in many parts of ravaged Germany, the most intense bouts of violence occurred in places that had recently been re-Catholicized by the Emperor. The process empowered local power holders to impose religious uniformity on aggressive crypto-Protestant populations and direct popular rage away from rulers and towards social outcasts. Another factor pushing people towards superstitious communal savagery was our good old friend the printing press, specifically the publication of The Malleus Maleficarum, or The Hammer of Witches. Written by a crank priest and inquisitor named Heinrich Kramer in 1486, the book went through 28 editions by the year 1600. In Kramer's time, witch trials were relatively rare, and he was actually expelled from Innsbruck in Austria for his overly inventive and sexually obsessive attempts at spectral prosecution. Basically, he is a fruitcake, and he wrote the Malleus to justify himself to all the haters and losers. (laughs) Though the church condemned Kramer's theorizing and the Inquisition did not use the book in any of their legal proceedings, it quickly captured the imagination of literate minds and became a staple of Renaissance courts, with its pseudo-authoritative explication of how witches are brought into Satan's service, how they seduce and ruin godly people, and how they are best to be dealt with. Witches, according to Kramer, are predominantly women due to the inherent weakness of those formed from a bent rib, as well as the many carnal abominations of that sex. Yeah, right, dude. Yeah. Witches had, yeah, he's got no problems. He's normal. (laughs) He's a normal guy. Witches had sexual intercourse with the devil. They killed babies in the womb and could change men into beasts. Witches could even work some prestigious illusion so that the male organ appears to be entirely removed and separate from the body or even deprive men of their virile member altogether. Lots of stuff about dick theft.
0: Penis panics are something that occur throughout all different types of cultures throughout history. It's an interesting thing to look into. Just periodically, every 100 years or so, some group somewhere gets obsessed with the idea that some foreign force is going to come and steal their penises. It's almost like their sense of disempowerment
1: is translating into sexual pathology. Hmm. Now, The witches could control the weather. They could destroy crops. In short, they could bring every manner of misfortune to an innocent village, like all the things that had been happening in Germany during the Thirty Years' War. And the only remedy, torture to the point of confession and death by burning at the stake. Now, as with the Rosicrucian pamphlets that appeared just as Frederick V's court moved towards their great project in Bohemia, the hammer of witches provided a common vocabulary and context for people facing dramatically changing times absent responsive political institutions the crop failures plague outbreaks and multiplying miseries of war could be made sense of with the available social materials the malleus helped create a shared imaginative world where suffering could be transformed into social power through a process a legal rationalized process of identifying and punishing those who activated social anxieties particularly around femininity women made up a majority of victims There are plenty of historians, however, who argue that the hammer of witches was not particularly influential in generating witch trials, but rather kind of serves as a written artifact that can be used retrospectively to give shape and coherence to a phenomenon that was much wilder and more inexplicable than historical narrative can grasp. It's it's a manual of witch mindset. (laughs) Now, as, as is usually the case, both of those interpretations contain truth. It's just a frustratingly unknowable ratio. But what can't be denied is the results of the hysteria. In 1627, the Catholic mercenary Peter Hagendorf wrote in his diary of his encounter with this sinister current of war. In Lipstadt there's good old beer and also bad people. I saw them burn seven. Among them was even a
0: beautiful maiden of 18, but she was burned. I read as I was researching this, um, there is a, a famous litany that just recounts who is burned in several of these burnings. They would do batch burnings and four or five people would be burned at a time. And it is very interesting to just go through and be like and it's listed as like uh you know george william the fattest man in town three strangers the most beautiful woman in town the fat wife of the richest man in town (laughs) it's this interesting mix of nobles rich people's wives and then literally just strangers they'd find in the woods and just because they didn't know them burn them alive all the people
1: who burn (laughs) burn
0: So, where violence and destruction and fear reign heaviest, we see this one type of hysteria, the fanatical purging of imagined supernatural evil. But, a few hundred miles away, in a place where people are actually making money off the war, we see a very different hysteria, one that nonetheless reflects the specific new kinds of supernatural forces gripping the population. Because just as the witch craze was winding down in Bavaria, tulip mania was gearing up in the Dutch Republic. In 1634 to 1637 would see one of the world's first documented speculative bubbles rock the Dutch economy. The first tulips were sent to the Low Countries by one of the Habsburg's ambassadors to the Ottomans in the 1550s, and were successfully cultivated there by the 1590s. The tulips bred in the Netherlands had spectacular colors and patterns that took years of dedicated breeding to bring forth, and as the independence and commercial fortunes of the Dutch grew during the first decades of the 17th century, the tulip became an incredibly sought-after luxury good. Trading in desirable tulip bulbs based around anticipated sales in their blooming season became a huge commodity in the growing Dutch markets. And by the 1630s, a semi-formalized futures market had developed to speculate on the contracts to purchase these bulbs, rather than the bulbs themselves. Tulips became one of the Republic's chief exports, right behind gin and herring, as massive fortunes were moved through the market. The craze reached its peak in the winter of 1636 to 1637 when some tulip futures contracts were being traded a half dozen times without any actual bulbs changing hands, all while constantly rising in prices. Single tulip bulbs were being priced at nearly 15 times the annual salary of a skilled craftsman. One trader reported 12 acres of land offered for a single bulb until in February of 1637, When the bottom dropped out of the market and prices rapidly depreciated, leaving traders holding futures to now worthless bulbs contracted at exorbitant prices and necessitating petitions to the government to step in and regulate and arbitrate the market. Now, to be clear, the extent of the impact of this whole episode is still debated. Financial records from the period are spotty, and some of the best transaction details come from a satirical play written about the stock traders of the time. The incident could have affected vast swaths of the Dutch population or a relatively small clique of well-off traders. But what is clear is that at the height of the war, the booming Dutch economy generated one of the first clearly recognizable speculative bubbles. A hysteria for trading, rampant overvaluation of the material was clearly felt in society. As contemporary art depicts commodity traders as gibbering monkeys and a crowd of weavers abandoning their trade to follow a wagon blown by the winds of fortune and guided by the goddess of flowers. At this
1: point, the Dutch commercial economy forged in the fires of war and religious fervor was the most highly developed in the world, leading to an unprecedented concentration of financial capital in Amsterdam. Feudal lords spent their surpluses on luxury goods to compete with other lords for splendorous prestige. The Dutch burgers, on the other hand, in their humble black frock coats and hats, set their money back out into the world to reproduce for the glory of God and the Dutch Republic and their own family lines who would hold their stock certificates and corporate board seats in perpetuity. The search for greater and greater returns on investment led them to the tulip, a luxury good now accessible to the common people and capable of providing massive profits to the elites who could sell to them. Catholic superstitions and rituals may have been banished from the United Provinces, but the deeper human mystic urge had not dissipated. Rather, it moved from the symbols of bread and wine to guilders and contracts. Tulip mania was the religious impulse, the trembling prostration before the divine, flowing out of the bare empty chapels and into the market stalls.
0: Now, did the Thirty Years' War cause these hysterias? Well, I would say uh, to paraphrase Arrested Development, It certainly didn't help, Yeah, you know? Yeah, but what you do see is a shockingly
1: recognizable context with multiplying crisis conditions and a society uh, dealing with an information revolution uh, and a overload, a new access to, to knowledge that had never before been possible, leading to this just a speculative frenzy, a mania for scapegoats, for profits generated by the fact that the world seemed... Accessible in a way it never had before, but in reality, uh, that knowledge was mostly an illusion.
0: So, as we transition out of the hell portion of this episode and return once again to the actual course of the war, uh, you know, we've been covering the progress of this war fairly in depth up to this point. You know, down to the minute progress of specific battles, but now we're going to start yada yadaing a little bit because, frankly. From this point on, any victories, losses, setbacks, and movements, it all becomes more immaterial. Uh, The positions are entrenched. A bunch of guys move to one place. Their enemies move to where they were. They fight. They trade places. They do it again. We're going to try to run through the back end of the war and uh, give you a sense of where things move briefly, but you know, really, it, it don't matter. None of this matters. None of this matters. Yes. So, in December 1636, the Imperial Diet met at Regensburg. The emperor's position at this moment was fairly strong, but for a few recalcitrant princes still in rebellion, most notably Bernard of Weimar, uh, who becomes basically the most important German prince in the back end of the war, uh, Ferdinand II commanded the allegiances of most of his subjects. With the Edict of Restitution revoked, the electors of Bavaria, Brandenburg, and Saxony were all by his side. And yes, if you're keeping track, and you should because this will all be on the test, Beer George has now gone from neutral to the Swedes, to neutral to the emperor in the span of what, like three or four years, Mm -hmm. something like that. With broad favorability, his son performing well on the battlefield, the peace of Prague signed. It was at this meeting that the Diet finally confirmed Ferdinand III as king of the Romans, lining him up to replace Ferdinand II as the holy Roman emperor. With his final position secured, perhaps Ferdinand knew his work was essentially done. He returned to Vienna and arrived with his health fading. On February 15, 1637, he died peacefully in his bed, surrounded by his wife and daughter and church officials. He was 59 years old. The war had lasted 18 years under his rule. It still had no end in sight. But he had been able to virtually rid Austrian lands of Protestantism, destroy the mutually threatening Catholic League and Protestant Union, extend Habsburg control and counter-reformation to Bohemia, bring a preponderance of German princes once again under control of the emperor. His son, Would continue the Habsburg line of Holy Roman emperors, and his son was married to Maria Anna of Spain, potentially reconciling the Spanish and Austrian Habsburg lines. It is virtually assured that when he died, he believed God would welcome him as a noble warrior for the kingdom of heaven. But for his victory in God's name, his realm had been destroyed, converted almost in totality to a playground for the uncontrolled and uncontrollable soldiers, women robbed and raped. Some reported boiled alive by imperial troops in their own kitchen cauldrons, children stolen for ransom and pressed into military service, priests roped to wagon trains and forced to crawl like dogs behind them until they collapsed, the wholesale pillaging of the land, terrorizing of the people, war and pestilence and famine, the true rulers of the era. Perhaps this is what Ferdinand would truly be judged for.
1: Ferdinand II was, in many ways, the last Holy Roman Emperor. He was brought up with an understanding of his position, nurtured in the stately opulence of the Hofburg Palace in Vienna, tutored in the eternal majesty of the Catholic Church, that was no longer consonant with the empire he claimed to rule. The old Verities could no longer hold together a fractured territory, teeming with hyper-competitive declining elites and rising urban merchants who took their identities from books rather than church rituals. But there was no way for Ferdinand to know this. He could only find out by trying to test the real extent of his power. It was his duty to God to exert his entire influence on the souls of his subjects. In doing so, he destroyed his country for a generation. He would not be the last ruler of Europe
0: to only discover the extent of their impotence when it was too late to reverse it. Ferdinand II was succeeded by his son, Ferdinand III, who was already the king of Hungary and now the commander of the imperial forces. Ferdinand III shared many of the traits of his father, but leaned more towards the philosophical and artistic than the staunchly Catholic. He's actually one of the only Habsburg rulers to have been a musical composer, and let's roll some of those Ferdinand III compositions under here. Between his more lenient Catholicism and speaking seven languages, he was a bit more well-suited for the diplomatic role he would play in his reign than his father. But perhaps he came off in court as more intellectual than he actually was. He was, quote, too clever to be happy, but not clever enough to be successful. Buddy, I know the feel. (laughs) As well, Emperor Ferdinand III had grown in an era where the Holy Roman Empire, as it was, had been nothing more than a collection of warring principalities, never a concrete entity to draw pride, prestige, or power from. His allegiance to any idea of the empire was distant and theoretical. His allegiance instead was to the confederation of Bohemia, Austria, and Hungary. His father had consolidated under the personal rule of the Habsburgs. So then let's turn back to the war itself and try to pull this thing to its bitter end. After the death of Adolphus, French influence increasingly took over the Protestant alliance. Of all the independent German princes, Bernard of Saxe-Weimar becomes the only major domestic Protestant force. And by 1635, he was made commander of German forces under a joint French and Swedish alliance, with the promise of becoming the Langrevite of Alsace dangled in front of him. Meanwhile, Richelieu was struggling with France's increased obligations. Fielding a French army was frustrating to the cardinal, since the French relied on their feudal method of delegating to various aristocrats to raise troops, which in turn empowered the recalcitrant French nobles against the monarchy. So then Richelieu relied on the vast wealth of France to keep armies like the one of Bernard Weimar paid and France was now supporting armies in Italy, Germany, the Dutch Republic and the French frontier with Spain, both in the South at the Pyrenees and in the North at the Netherlands. All this caused Richelieu to squeeze France's archaic tax system to pull funds out of the poorest in the kingdom. But this all drove the Cardinal to professionalize the army as much as he could, encouraging skill over numbers, reducing the massive traveling camps of followers, opening paths for promotion by skill rather than noble birth, and within a decade, creating a much leaner and more efficient French military. Also notable here was uh, limiting the system of just uh, conscripting the army with captives from the defeated enemy, which then diluted the skill officer pool. Uh, Now those guys got shipped off to the uh, Navy to be slaves in the galleys. Efficiency. We love it. We love efficiency. So with all that wind up, let's drive this thing home. So in 1635, the French form an alliance with the
1: Swiss Confederation and invade and occupy the Val Tinine, that crucial Alpine Valley that, can, that linked Italy to Germany on the Spanish Road, once again cutting off the Spanish from resupplying the Netherlands. In the summer of 1636, the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand, along with Imperial German allies, make a m- joint push into France. They get as far as Corbeil, within 100 miles of Paris, before the alliance falls apart for lack of organization and leadership. Now, many of the campaigns of the second half of the war can be described this way. Armies are formed, march into enemy territory, and in the face of plague outbreaks and uh, collapsing infrastructure, just melt away into the countryside. Shortly after this, the Swiss make another deal with the Spanish and sell control of the Valtanin in exchange for religious liberties. The French are pushed out of the region, and the
0: Spanish road is reopened. In the north, in October 1636, the Swedes win a victory at Wittstock in Brandenburg, And successfully re establish a commanding Swedish presence in northern Germany. In the spring of 1637, Bernard Saxe Weimar wins a series of battles in the Rhine, then, in 1638, wins a protracted siege at Breisach. This secures the Alsace for the French and once again cuts off the Spanish road. In October 1637, Frederick Henry of Orange takes Breda on the Dutch Flemish border, a key defeat for the Spanish and the Cardinal Infant.
1: There's actually a funny story there. Uh, so Breda had been taken by the Spanish, mm-hmm. and Diego Velázquez was commissioned to do a painting uh, of, of that to celebrate it, and it was revealed basically exactly at the moment that the Dutch took uh, Breda back. <laughs> uh, in April and May of 1639, Swedish forces under Marshal Bonaire pushed John George out of Saxony and back into Bohemia. The Swedes marched forth but are rebuffed at Prague. Bonaire reports from the region at this time, I had not thought the kingdom of Bohemia so lean, wasted, and spoiled, for between Prague and Vienna all is raised to the ground and hardly a living soul to be seen in the land. Also in 1639, Bernard Sachs-Weimar makes a bold play against his French allies to demand outright control of Alsace for himself. But a few weeks later, he dies of a sudden fever. In his will, after a nominal attempt to find a German willing to take him, he leaves Alsace and his armies to France. With the death of Bernard, the final German prince of any importance passes. The Protestant cause, the cause of German liberties, is now wholly in the hands of foreigners and
0: German lands. Meanwhile, Spain is getting absolutely eaten alive by the Dutch. Their economy was collapsing so thoroughly under inflation, many Spanish cities were resorting to barter for trade. Spain was losing the mercantile war so badly that as many as three quarters of ships carrying goods into Spain itself were Dutch. In October... 1639, a massive fleet of 77 Spanish ships was routed by the Dutch at the Battle of the Downs. The Spanish fleet was driven into neutral English waters and decimated, with 70 ships being sunk or taken. This effectively ended any pretensions of Spanish control over the English Channel. The seas were orange now. So, now cut off from supply by both land and sea, the Spanish Netherlands withered. By 1640, they were being asked to send troops and supplies to Spain. Under enormous pressure and unfillable contradicting orders, the cardinal infant dies on November 9th of that year. On the imperial side, lack of Spanish subsidies and general, death or capture of most of their officer class led to disarray. At this point, the army was a little more than a massive blob of scavenging men, impossible to coordinate and just wandering off whenever the chance for booty appeared. In January 1641, a Swedish army attempts to
1: intimidate the imperial Diet at Regensburg out of its sessions. But Ferdinand calls their bluff, stands his ground, and the forces of the Swedes must back off. But around this time, George William, the elector of Brandenburg, died. And his successor, his son, George Frederick, having surveyed the horrors and devastation that had been wrought and being forced to flee his residence in Berlin for one in Konigsberg because the roof was literally falling in, went behind the emperor's back to sue for an armistice with Sweden. The peace of Prague in 1635 had been a genuine compromise. Now, with the damn French storming around the place, it looked like obstinance. Ferdinand III,
0: unlike his more stubborn father, realized this and prepares for future diplomacy. The Swedish Marshal Benair dies, having gone slightly nutty at the end after his beloved wife died. He actually, uh in a scandalous move, marries a much younger uh, woman in the, uh, the army camp. And towards the end of his life, his uh, soldiers are gossiping that he's just spending all his time hanging out with her young friends and partying. So he dies and is replaced by Leonard Torstensen, who puts the army under brutal discipline to regain order. But he also does away with the last pretense of pay for the army services and fully legalizes the system of plunder and looting the army had been surviving off of. Torstensen attacks down through Moravia and towards Vienna until he's pushed back up by Archduke Leopold, Ferdinand III's brother, who is now in charge of the imperial army. The Swedes and Imperials confront each other again at Breitenfeld on November 2nd, 1642. Leopold gets washed at second Breitenfeld and the Swedes again take Leipzig to dominate Saxony philip IV of spain was going to appoint leopold as the new governor of the netherlands but suddenly decides to appoint his 12 year old bastard son don john to the post one final rupture in the austrian spanish trust in december
1: 1642 cardinal richelieu dies r.i.p to a true legend there he's administered on his deathbed by louis the 13th himself who lovingly fed him egg yolks as he slipped away what a weirdly sweet image Richelieu is succeeded by his Italian mini-me, Cardinal Mazarin, who largely continues his policies. Louis XIII then also dies on May 14th, 1643, less than a year later. He is succeeded by his five-year-old son, Louis XIV, heard of him, and his queen mother, regent, the confusingly Spanish Anne of Austria, on May 19th, five days after the death of Louis Thirteenth, the French army issued a crushing defeat to the Spanish at Rocroi on the French-Flemish border. A century of military technological and tactical innovation had finally caught up with the indomitable Spanish Tercio infantry formation. The Tercios at Rocroi withstood heavy assaults during the battle before being pounded into submission by withering artillery and harassing cavalry. The Spanish eventually would be forced to abandon the Tercio, along with their hopes of ever reclaiming the United Provinces. So profound was the defeat that Wedgwood refers to the Recroy Battle Monument as the gravestone of Spanish greatness.
0: Recroy would be the last major real contest of forces in the Thirty Years' War. Five weeks after the battle, Ferdinand III called for negotiations with France and Sweden. After 25 years of conflict, it was time to come to the table. Now, It's 1643, and fighting and negotiations would continue for another five years to bring us up to that nice round 30. But at this point, basically all parties involved realized that the conflict would not and could not be won in an overwhelming military victory.
1: A tax official for Brandenburg wrote his armies were rampaging across his home state. This whole war has been a veritable robbers and thieves campaign. The generals and colonels have lined their purses while princes and lords have been led around by the nose. But whenever there have been talk of wanting to make peace, they have always looked to their reputations. That's what the land and people have been devastated for. Now Although the hope of either side to achieve a military victory had long dispersed, the combatants up and down the chain of command were all still locked into an unalterable logic of war. The incentive of the warlords commanding armies in the field was clear. War was an opportunity to win lands, riches, and titles. The Swedish general, Melander, the son of a peasant farmer, fought his way up to a counthood. Even the agonies of life in camp were soothed by the ability of military elites to command a lion's share of contributions and loot. Theirs were the last stomachs to go hungry. And the common soldiers, shivering under tents and eating their shoes, fought on because it was better to be in the camp than to have their tents and shoes taken from them by other men with guns. And those great princes, while much more comfortable than anyone in the field, were just as enthralled to Mars. Every consideration of state demanded continued conflict. For the emperor, any lasting peace settlement would need to include an amnesty for all who took up arms against him. Without that, no one would have an incentive to stop fighting. But any amnesty worth the paper it was printed on would include a restitution of lost lands and titles. Those lands and titles all were all spoken for, having been distributed to imperial allies as reward and payment for services. How could they be dispossessed? That gave the emperor hope that he could extort on the battlefield an acknowledgment of loss of property as the price for peace. Meanwhile, Sweden was stuck in a Central European quagmire that had all the hallmarks of the failed imperial counterinsurgency campaigns of later centuries with a dissolving support base, increased elite resistance at home, spiraling war debt, the need to defend Swedish claims to conquer German lands, and no plausible exit strategy, all leading to a fatal strategic paralysis. Then, of course, the main antagonists, France and Spain, were locked in a mutually recognized existential contest for primacy in European affairs. No one, regardless of the bloodshed and devastation wrought, could be the first to sue for peace, the loss of reputation the coin of the diplomatic realm would be too great. As long as the war could be paid for, it would be fought. And it was the question of paying for the war and the impact the war effort had taken on the common people of Europe that finally drove the belligerents to the negotiating table. The peasantry of Germany had been bled dry, burned out of their homes and harried into the wilderness. In much of the country, sovereignty above the level of the commander of the nearest armed camp did not exist. The peasant uprisings of the early years had all been bloodily suppressed Defeated but still defiant villagers might band together to ambush military patrols and publicly display the corpses of tortured soldiers as a warning to others, but by the 1640s, all most peasants could manage was to keep one step ahead of the wolf. Even the politically febrile urban merchant and political classes suffered domination by permanent martial law. But in France, and in the Spanish lands of Iberia and southern Italy, where rural peasant, urban merchant, and aristocratic society still functioned, people outside of the circle of royal power were eventually able to mobilize an answer to the extortionate demands of the fiscal military state war machine. As a consequence of these struggles, which we'll talk about next episode, the two chief dynastic antagonists of the war, the Bourbons and the Habsburgs, finally had sufficient incentive to risk
0: sacrificing some reputation to hold on to their power. It took a little bit of time to actually get this thing together, thanks to some Stupid dicking around by the Danes of all people, which we might touch on next week as well. But on December 4th, 1644, a Congress that would eventually include over a hundred individual delegations was opened in the towns of Munster and Osnabrück, in the German region of Westphalia. Here, while armies continued to ravage German lands, the peace of Westphalia would be negotiated, and out of the chaos of war, a new vision for the state would slowly emerge. Earth is written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chappotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Tyrant King, Takeshi Alessandro, Frederick Scarfone, John Ahrens, Blackout Princess, Wagner Coop, and Ferdinand III Habsburg. Join us next week for peace and a new war.